Hey, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is your host, Brad Burke. I am a sports marketer in Chicago. With me is my friend and longtime co-host, Gareth Hughes. As you can tell from our condensed introduction this week, obviously, we, like everybody else, are reacting to the truly historic and global worldwide protests and demonstrations that have been happening against racial injustice, against police brutality. And today... We're going to acknowledge right off the top that the what the world does probably not need at this moment is two 40-year-old white guys who've been holed up in their apartments trying to give you their read on exactly all the nuances that are happening. Uh, in fact, some of today what we're going to do is try to amplify some voices in the black community that we think you should be turning to at this moment. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we're going to address this um, by offering up this platform to people in and around sports like we've always done, to come on and talk about their experiences and talk about the culture around sports. Uh, it's not going to be an issue we're going to shy away from, in fact. And Gareth and I are committed to giving people as much of a signal boost as, as our meager show can uh, as they try to address these various serious issues. So Gareth, with that, let me just kind of ask you, I, I know that you've had some changes in your chemo treatments, and one of the first things you said was, how kind of frustrated you were not to be uh, out there in the streets of New York with a lot of, because look, let's face it, man, that's where you would normally be. I, I feel like when there's a, um, when there is a demonstration to be had, Gareth Hughes is ready to go. There, I find the spirit of them to be very uplifting and powerful. But the fact of the matter is I have cancer and we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And so that sort of has to trump all of this. Uh, this is about as much as I want to make it about me in this moment. The cancer has been fine, but there was one night we were going to bed and like Amy was half asleep and I just said, Amy, I really want to go to a protest. And she just, she didn't get mad. And this is why it works. She just barely looked up. She just said, care, not going to happen, bud. And like went back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so it kind of told me all I need to know. But the next day we had a long conversation. She was just like, and she said, she was like, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to worry about you getting Corona at a protest during this now. And I ended up talking to my therapist about that. And she said, well, it's interesting. She uses the phrase emotional bandwidth. I think that is what you're seeing now is people in the streets saying, we don't have the emotional bandwidth anymore to deal with this. And we're done. We're full up on the trauma of violence from police towards black Americans and we don't have the emotional bandwidth to deal with it anymore. And this is the only way we can express ourselves. I went to an event in Arlington Heights that was near, you know, near enough to my house. I could ride my bike over. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was very moving. It was, it was, you know, serene would be the way I would describe it. I mean, it was, it was speakers and it was, um, you know, just kind of people listening and opening their minds. Lots of young people, again, a diverse group. Um, and I think what what I was really moved by was the images of demonstrations that were happening in smaller communities like that all across the country. Um, you know, back in our hometown, talking to my mom about it, you know, in, in rural Ohio, um, in areas across, uh, across the country. I mean, you just had people coming together and wanting to take part in the movement and recognizing its importance. And I think that's a stark contrast. If you go back and listen to the conversations we were having during the kneeling, um, you know, w w which 
mean, Kaepernick was still in the league when we when this podcast was going right, and we were talking about the nature of the protests and whether it was effective. And we went through the whole phase with Donald Trump sort of hijacking it and trying to tip it toward it being anti-military. And it's just like it felt it, it was it, it was quite remarkable having so much distance between then and now, and then how quickly a lot of those emotions kind of swelled back up and how much more universally they were embraced. I mean, that was like night and day. JJ Watt last week, who is like, he is a flag waving, you know, symbol of the all American man, you know, the white version of the all American man. Somebody said, I don't know if you'll be kneeling on to him on Twitter. And he just wrote back two things. One, don't speak for me. And two, if you still think kneeling is about the flag and the troops, you haven't been paying attention. I don't care if he kneels, but that statement alone would not have happened a long time ago. Right. Well, the the, the line that stuck with me was um, Van Lathan, uh, who started a really great podcast. We'll talk about this more later. He started a really great podcast with The Ringer, with Rachel Lindsay, the former bachelorette. And he said, look, Kaepernick, gave you a modern way to protest. It was social by design. It was peaceful. It was public. It was, you know, by by changing the nature of it, when he got feedback in real time, it was respectful. And white mm. America said, nope. And so you got the throwback. <laughs> you, you got the vintage protest, which was take to the streets, like express your anger and frustration. And for some people that meant signs and standing up to authority figures for other people that, that meant ultimately some destruction. And I think that that's what took me back to that spot was when you saw all the people out in the street saying, we're not going to take this anymore. It was a kind of a stark reminder that that's what Cap did back then in a much more humble, simple, silent gesture. Mm-hmm. And that was deemed too radical. And I think it's a good... Uh, Gareth, I always say this. White apathy to racism sometimes i think it's built as like this wall to be knocked over and i think of it as the tide <laughs> like it'll roll yeah. back and then you yep. start to build and it'll just seep back in in some sort of underhanded boring way like somebody going into a voting booth and saying all the right things but voting for the regressive candidate or somebody like taking their shitty views into private closed loops and i think this is this is another sign that the goalposts will always be moved. And whether it's one person kneeling silently to themselves or it's people in the street, people are always going to say, oh, that's wrong. And, and I think it's a good reminder that when we as white people need to be more open-minded to people who are in marginalized groups in society saying, I don't want to take this anymore. And it, the earlier we listen, we're probably getting a much like a much more seamless way to say, great, let's fix that. Uh, if we listen early and open our minds. And I, I do think this more than anything was a, a stark reminder of that. So, yes. So look, here's what Gareth and I are going to do uh, as best we can. We're going to open up this platform to have ongoing dialogues around this movement and how it's going to uh, impact the sports world, how the sports world is going to impact the movement, how it's going to sustain it, and how it's going to manifest itself across all different types of sports and all different experiences with athletes. I've put out a bunch of feelers. 
I, I do, uh, Gareth, I would say this. A lot of prominent members of the sports world and the black community, right now is the time where they're getting airtime on CNN. And I'm saying, cool, I will circle back with you <laughs> when you are ready to come on the, uh, the low-rated Just Not Sports podcast. But that's a, I do think that shows like us where we can provide value is not just reacting to this in the moment, in the immediate news cycle, but to revisit it over the long haul, which is what I hope for us to do. The other thing I just want to reinforce is that a lot of people in the sports world have been having this conversation with us and maybe we weren't listening hard enough. You know, we've done I went back and looked, Gareth. We've talked about racial injustice and police brutality with everyone from Charles Tillman, episode seven. You know, Megan Rapino talked about the role that protest plays as one of the the earliest sort of white athletes to to kneel with Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it with Aaron Maben, you know, community activism. Uh, you know, the work that he's done in, in Baltimore, Baron Davis, you know, representation for things like um, his Black Santa project. And today we thought it, we would just go back and play a little bit of a interview we did with Doug Glanville, the former Major League Baseball player, about an issue he had being racially profiled, in, I believe, in his own driveway. <laughs> um, and this is something that we we did, I think, back in 2017, Gareth, because I was in New York and we had him on. We've just seen it. Yeah, that's right. And and I, I, I just thought it would be good to revisit because I think this is a great example of us maybe needing to remind ourselves consistently, be willing to listen earlier. Here's a man who used our platform three years ago to talk about this specific issue of racial injustice, of the abuse and the intolerant nature of, of certain aspects of law enforcement. And we just wanted to go back and revisit that and again, spin forward what we hope to do is continue to talk about these complicated issues in as nuanced a, a fashion as our guests are willing to do it. Love it. Great plan. And then stick around afterwards. Gareth and I are going to take a page from things that we've seen online of late and use our time uh, to and use our time to share some of the members of the black community that we think are doing really interesting, nuanced work that you should go check out. Let me start here. What is the role that um, you know speaking out of plays in the modern environment for for athletes and members of the sports media, who I think more than ever are refusing to to stick to sports as as some fans uh, want them to? Well, you know, I would say it's to be determined that role. It's evolving, and I don't know if it's ever been something simple to just put into a box and categorize. It's a uh, it's been a living organism mm-hmm. for for quite some time. I mean, you think back to uh, a lot of key moments uh, over the years where athletes took certain positions or sports media took certain positions, and um, it, it's created awareness. It's created conversation and maybe controversy sometimes. But uh, you know, the whole idea of sticking to sports, I you know, I'm kind of thankful a lot of people didn't speak stick to sports like Jackie Robinson or Roberto Clemente or you know so many great figures in the game that I that I care about. I mean, it's uh, they are in a position to uh, you know make change or at least bring awareness. And and the thing is, I don't I can't judge someone for using the platform that they believe is the best one for them or the one that they have the most influence. I, you know, I'm very fortunate that I can write in different places. I can go to I have a lot of other venues where I can address things that I found to be effective. So I didn't feel like I needed to kneel, for example, in a Kaepernick scenario. But, you know, 
those were his tools. And um, you know, so, and and sure, I the when I watch whatever show I'm watching, I, I'd like to sit down and just enjoy, you know, whatever it is, Game of Thrones or whatever. But um, but the reality is more and more as the players are so much more tangible, uh, Twitter, social media, Facebook, there, there's no off button. And, and I think when there's no off button and you want all this access and what comes with it is their true life. You know, uh, you, you, you have to add in that there's downtime and there's stress. And so that to me is a natural trade-off with the trends of social media that if you, you're in everybody's locker room and you want mics on everybody and all that, well, well, I'm not just playing sports. And, and we also have to keep in mind the players that have certain experiences, whether, whatever challenges it may be law enforcement or you know, trying to get a taxi or whatever, you know, uh, they don't get to just be athletes. You know, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, it sounds great. Like I get to sit there and they, I just want to watch the game. I don't want to be bothered. But those athletes on the field do not have that, that luxury. Even, even in the three hours there, there's so much going on post-game, pre-game, that uh, there's very little time to just be an athlete. The only time I remember doing that was when I was playing wiffle ball with my brother when I was like seven. <laughs> Uh, by the way, Gareth and I are, are accomplished wiffle ball players going back to our youth in Ohio. Yeah, we have a lot of uh, house rules that we could lay out here for a separate episode. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. I love, Doug, it's interesting you brought up the trying to get a taxi. Uh, there was a, I was reading something on Twitter today. Trevon Free, who writes for Samantha B, posted that he posted a picture of himself holding an Emmy. And he was like, I can't get a cab right now as he's like standing on a street yeah. holding an Emmy. Um, I was like, that's fairly stark. Um, but yeah. what I wanted to ask you was, how did you balance that when you were a player? I mean, we've um, we've seen and read a lot of your work from after your playing days. But as you were a player, how how did you find the best pl- way to get your voice out? as we've been seeing now. I mean, you, you, you were on the leading edge or kind of overlapped the birth of social media. So, yeah, well, it, it, um, it's changed for me. I've, I've evolved more uh, to be more vocal. And I've also found this phenomenal tool in writing. You know, that was mm-hmm. post career. I mean, I, I had fantastic English teachers in high school and I wrote, but it wasn't really until I, sort of sat down and watched, you know, read about the Mitchell Report exposing all the steroids in baseball that I really found a, a, a platform in media. But as a player, I, you know, I kind of referenced Curtis Granderson with the Mets who, who said, there's so many ways to address these issues, whatever inequities. It's not always has to be jump on the hot mic that's on right now because someone's bringing attention to it. Uh, you know, it's about the longer behind the scenes work also. So whether you work in education with high schools and try to find job, job training and all these other ways that you can have direct impact and actually more on a granular level where you're touching the fabric of the issue that that's equally important. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, maybe it's not on Twitter. Maybe it's not that sexy. Maybe it's not, you know, retweeted and, and posted all over the world. But the reality is in the end, you can do all that, but that's finite until the next news cycle and the sustainable work is something that, you know, is what really endures that you are more hands-on. So when I was a player, I did much more of that, you know, working different organizations and Philadelphia futures was one I, you know, think about and And, um, and plus you're just really busy and running around in games and it's, it's a lot harder to follow up. But once my career ended, I saw such a natural marriage between 
um, you know, social justice, equality, bringing awareness, and and sports. And then when I combined that with a media career, it was uh, the trifecta. So you you mentioned Philadelphia there, Holland Oats, obviously with some Philly roots. You went to Penn. Um, at the same, like this is not small. You have a law named named after you or that you helped get on the books in Connecticut like how much of it that was fascinating to read about I have to say and you know the there was it was a profiling case in Hartford and do you view that now as a part of your legacy equal to or up there with your baseball career your writing like the activism and really like granular on the books social justice work to get that enacted um a part of your legacy is now certainly tied to connecticut sure i mean and and you know beyond that i didn't really think of it at least certainly at the time as you know for my own um footprint i mean i i wanted to address something that i felt could benefit many people even just the dialogue about it could be mm-hmm. significant and i think that it, it was I did not choose the experience, and, and uh, it was, you know, I don't know, if, just to recap, I mean, I, I was just shoveling my driveway um, in a snowy day in, in my uh, house in uh, my house in Hartford, and there was an officer from the next town over, which was West Hartford, um, was kind of looking for someone, and it was, you know, it took a while to unearth what actually happened, but in, in, in a nutshell, the exchange was, he approached me and asked me directly without introduction or anything, just saying, uh, are you trying to make extra money shoveling people's driveway around here, basically? So you can imagine that, you know, you're, you're right. in your own driveway. Right. And, you know, and then all the context, right, police and African-American and all the things that kind of rush to your mind about this could go badly, even if it's a misunderstanding. And, and uh, you know, so it, but it led, you know, I wrote this article for the Atlantic and it, you know, opened up a lot of conversations and I, I engaged with West Hartford and uh, a lot of their community members were fantastic. They, you know, they, they eventually jumped on board. So it was a very collaborative experience and that's what I appreciated the most. The slow work is what endures, but it's not, it, it's not always, you know, what is that vocal and invisible, right? You have to kind of, to make a law, it was like 18 months. It was like, but in that process, because it's slow, you bring more people on board, they invest, you get expertise, you learn to hear the other side, the other perspective. And then when you actually come up with a solution, it's much more collective and more people are invested in it. And I, and I feel that that's the change that, that really works. Anybody can go on Twitter in, in 140 characters, but it's, it's that, heavy lift uh, that's going right. to really change our world yeah i i loved the i think the atlantic article gave a great sense of um i'm going to use a bad pun here but like the snowball effect of how all of that went into action like you wrote about how you felt the morning of this incident and then how uh, profiling changed your mood that day and then the reactions to it and emails started to get sent and meetings started to happen and it was like oh yeah I guess that's how these things happen it's not just sort of like you know you know certain things can happen through protest and um, very sharp reactions uh, very immediate reactions but th- what you described was something very granular very uh, I don't want to say slow moving, but it had a methodical nature to it that led to concrete results. 
Um, so highly recommend to no, anyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and and realize the access is the power, right? You have. I mean, I learned a lot about the fact that yes, being a, a professional athlete, being working at ESPN at the time, and all these things, it mattered because I had access. I also had the luxury of time. I had a lot of time to follow up, and in the process of working on a law, you realize how difficult it is if you can't like be off on work on a Tuesday, or you know you can't go to the public hearing, and if you can't go to the public hearing, you can't. You know, mm-hmm. and so it, the access is really something we need to open up more to hear more people because it, you know, for me to stay on the accelerator as long as I did you know, mm-hmm. with so many people, state's attorney, the dean of the law school and, you know, state reps. And for me to do this was, you know, it took a lot of time and yeah, obviously I had to have the luxury to be able to afford it. All right, Gareth, we are back. And look, a couple of days ago, I think, as many people who who use Instagram and Facebook saw, which which you didn't, Garrett, since you do not use either of, of those platforms <laughs> out of your own form of um of, of I want Facebook to have nothing to do with my life. Thank you. <laughs> um, there was that movement to uh you know take your your own personal screens, uh, put up a black image, and just kind of go dark for the day so that black voices could break through. Now that was not really what was supposed to happen. People were like doing this all wrong. They were tagging black lives matter, which was just like dumping the actual, like, you know, vital images from the protests into the bottom of that, that hashtags feed. Um, they also were not listening to the intent of the organizers who initially said they wanted to, uh, use that not just to silence yourself, but to amplify and introduce uh, other people to vital, uh, members of the black community who are doing interesting work, provocative work, and who deserve better visibility. So we're going to share some things created by members of the black community so that um, you can kind of hear, you know, who's inspiring us and we can do our very small part to uh, signal boost, uh, you know, their efforts. So y- you want to go first, me go first, you go first, me go first. You definitely go first because um, I'm going to pull something kind of on brand here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have a Gareth on brand too, so we'll see how, how that goes. Okay. All right. I mentioned Van Lathan off the top. Van's doing great work over at The Ringer. So if you, if you don't know Van, he's probably most kind of Googleable from being the guy who worked in the TMZ newsroom and confronted Kanye West that day. Kanye was like talking about slavery as being a choice and all this other nonsense. He has such gone on to the ringer. I think he's doing really interesting work. He's got a podcast with friend of show Jamel Hill about The Wire called Way Down in the Hole, which examines the show and puts a new kind of lens on it through our our own experiences now. And look, just like a couple weeks ago, he launched a podcast called Higher Learning with Rachel Lindsay, who you might remember as the only uh, black woman to serve as The Bachelorette. That show is amazing. They they have just microwaved a platform to talk about issues of um, race, culture, society. I think it's really great. I've been tuning There's on a lot, a lot of gender of- and sexuality right built into that. Yeah, yeah. Know, I mean, look, they, and they've got great chemistry. They're they're in separate rooms, but like they just sound like they've been doing this forever. So uh, go check out the work that um, you know. So go check out uh, Way Down the Hole and Higher Learning. I can't recommend them more. Awesome. Oh, wait, wait. And why I mentioned Jamel, uh, I think Jamel Hill is Unbothered has a new season that's just started up, I believe. 
don't kill me if I don't know this. I believe she started with John Legend um, on the new season. So, you know, we've always been big fans of Jamel ever since I got a chance to meet and work with her back in 2016. Um, also a fan of Bachelor in Paradise. So uh, go check out her podcast as well. Also, but I want to agree with you on Jamel. Just she's one of the voices out there who has been, I don't know, she's stood up for what she believes and never compromised her voice even when it's hurt her professionally. Like she's not on ESPN anymore for that reason, but it's, I don't know, certain thing. Uh, I always admire those people where their voice means more to them than anything. And she is one of those people, you know, she's never not going to be authentic in that way. So I loved and hear that she's working with van and that's awesome. So, yeah. Amazing. All right. So mine was of course, uh, a long dead person. Um, who's not online, who is an author who's only had one of his books adapted, and that is James Baldwin. Um, James Baldwin has had, but he's a very contemporary person, and I think he's probably the most sophisticated writer the, that America has ever had on race. And he certainly had his moments in the last few years with, first of all, the award-winning documentary about him, I Am Not Your Negro, and then uh, last year's adaptation of If Beale Street Could Talk, Barry Jenkins' follow-up to his smash Moonlight, uh, Oscar-winning best, best Picture Moonlight. That was the first time that any of Baldwin's work had been allowed to be adapted, which I find amazing. I mean, this is a guy that wrote so much and has been a part of the public conversation for so long. My favorite book of his is Another Country. It was published in 1962. It's his big, long, sprawling novel that's kind of similar to that time. He takes on race, sexuality, frankly, professional jealousy. Um, it's all kind of mixed up in a mess in there. And whenever I am Confronted with questions of race in America, I turned to James Baldwin. And I was looking through another country and I found this passage that I wanted that I had marked and wanted to share for this. So to give some background, Rufus is a jazz drummer, and at the beginning of the book, near the beginning of the book, he jumps off the George Washington Bridge and kills himself. His best friend is a gentleman named uh, Vivaldo. And his sister is Ida, and they get into a romantic relationship after his passing. And so this is a scene outdoors one night in New York City between Vivaldo and Ida, where they're reflecting on the death of Rufus. And it begins, he was silent for a moment. Then, you're never going to forgive me, are you, for your brother's death? Then she too was silent. He said, I loved you, brother, too, Ida. You don't believe that. I know, but I did. He was just, But he was just a man, baby. He wasn't a saint. I never said he was a saint, but I'm black, too, and I know how white people treat black boys and girls. They think you're something for them to wipe their pricks on. He saw the lights of the movie theater three blocks down the avenue. The summer streets were full. His throat cleared, and his eyes began to burn. After all this time we've been together, he said, you still think like that? Our being together doesn't change the world, Vivaldo. It does, he said, for me. That, she said, is because you're white. 
he felt suddenly that he was going to scream right there in the crowded streets or close his heavy fingers around her neck. The lights of the movie theater wavered before him and the sidewalk seemed to tilt. You stop that, he said in a voice he did not recognize. You stop that. You stop trying to kill me. It's not my fault I'm white. It's not my fault you're black. It's not my fault he's dead. He threw back his head sharply to scatter away his tears, to bring the lights into focus, to make the sidewalk even. And in another voice, he said, he's dead, sweetheart, but we're alive. We're alive, and I love you. I love you. Please don't try to kill me. And then, don't you love me? Don't you love me, Ida? Do you? And he turned his head and looked at her. She did not look at him. And she said nothing, said nothing for a block or more. The theater came closer and closer. Cass and Eric were standing under the marquee and they waved. What I don't understand, she said slowly, is how you can talk about love when you don't want to know what's happening. And that's not my fault. How can you say you loved Rufus when there was so much about him you didn't want to know? How can I believe you love me? And with a curious helplessness, she took his arm. How can you love somebody you don't know anything about? You don't know where I've been. You don't know what life is like for me. But I'm willing, he said, to spend the rest of my life finding out. She threw her head back and laughed. Oh, Vivaldo, you may spend the rest of your life finding out, but it won't be because you're willing, and then with ferocity, and it won't be me you'll be finding out about. Oh, Lord. She dropped his arm. She gave him a strange side glance. He could not read it. It seemed both pitying and cold. I'm sorry to have hurt your feelings, and I'm not trying to kill you. I know you're not responsible for for the world. And listen, I don't blame you for not being willing. I'm not willing. Nobody's willing. Nobody's willing to pay their dues. Then she moved forward, smiling, to greet Eric and Cass. And dude, yeah. this is a fight between a couple. He's white, she's black, that was written in 1962. Where she's basically saying to him, "You can't. You can say you want to try to get to know about me, but you're not going to. And I don't want to have to teach you. And nobody's wants to put in to pay their dues. And it feels like the echo of so many of the conversations we're having now. I mean, look, it's fatalist. It's bleak, but it also feels like a lot of the Twitter conversations about how." It's not the responsibility of black people to teach white people how to not be racist and things like that. And I just find, I mean, his writing is extraordinary. It teach, it says something to me about the timelessness of these sorts of fights. I mean, if slavery is America's original sin, then this stuff is baked in for 400 years. And he said it as well as anyone in a novel 60 years ago. So that's my amplification of voices. Yeah, no, that that is powerful. Are you? Do you listen to George the Poet? No. Do you know him? I don't listen. My podcast listening is pretty trash. So <laughs> I like this. Is not only amplifying voices for our listeners, but also for me. Yeah, I <laughs> so. mean, one of the ones I had here on my list was like, "Have you heard George's podcast? He's a poet who does a really novel things with." Um, poetry, narrative storytelling, audio storytelling, and last week it won a Peabody Award. So um, I would just say you you should check it out because I think you would, just given your taste and your interest in this type of literature, I think you would really, really enjoy it. 
Love it. Thank you. All right, let me shout out. Let me shout out a couple more uh, voices. I want to get our listeners to tune in for. Gareth, do you listen to the Quest Love Supreme podcast? I I think I've downloaded it and never listened to it. So he, it's you know, you've got the stats from me. So there you go. It's great, dude. It's really great. I uh, spoiler alert. I was prepping for an interview with um, that we've got coming up with Huey Lewis. And I listened, and I listened to Questlove's interview with him, and I just kind of fell in love with Questlove, Questlove's podcast. Like I had kind of heard about it, but I hadn't really dove into it yet. And it took me to um, other shows that he's done, and I think he's really good. I think the energy on that show is great, and the perspectives he knows everything about music. Like they, people just say, "Oh, this, you know, this one tape, this one time I heard," and he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> like so and so." Like it's like, oh. Yeah, yeah dude, you know. to say encyclopedic encyclopedic does not do his knowledge justice. I mean, it's weird. By the way, it, oh, I know, I know. Um, and then the I just noticed that like Tory Smith, the former NFL player, launched a podcast called Trending Thoughts with Tory Smith. So that sure. was another person I reached out to to see if um, maybe we get him on to talk about you know launching a podcast. Gareth, I still I still miss the Arian Foster podcast um I, you know and we and you know us we are stands of Aaron foster's rap music he did put I, out I, a, a, a new mean, ep last year i was gonna say has he made a full follow-up album yet uh, i don't think it was a full album it was pretty good i mean I, the Arian foster album the further away we get from it is the pinnacle of athlete music right yeah no, no it's he has a chance to become better known as a musician than an athlete. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, unbelievable. But anyway, trending thoughts yeah. with Tori Smith. I would I would encourage everyone to check it out. And then friend of show Lawrence Holmes. If you're a Chicagoan, I know we get a lot of Chicago listeners. You you know Lawrence from his work on 670 The Score, his work on TV here locally. His his podcast House of L is really good, and um, he did a really great kind of. Um, introspective look at all the stuff that was going on um, here in Chicago was, was pretty hard on our new, you know, our new mayor and how for all the tough talk about reform, you know, her leaning on tried and true tactics during the initial wave of the protest. So, um, mm. but look, Lawrence does great shows. He, he, he's always really in depth about the Chicago scene. And, and I, I, I also think he, like many people that have been on the show, um, that we talked to. He's done a good job also diversifying a little bit beyond sports and, and, and introducing new topics, new territories to his show as well. So go check out House of L. I mean, let's be honest. If you're going to survive as a podcast, you either have to be hyper, super duper laser focused or embrace everything that comes your way. And then, so I would like to say one of the voices I want to give a shout out to is one of the more focused podcasts. It's called The Slowdown hosted by former Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith. Um, her poetry is beautiful. I am a big fan of her National Book Award winning collection, Life on Mars, which is her grappling with her father's death and also her love of David Bowie. Um, but she's a black woman. And so every morning on the slowdown, she reads an intro and then reads a poem by somebody. They deal with any topic you know, race, sexuality, gender, neither, none of it, what have you. It's a meditative few minutes out of your day, but it's also a time where you can grapple with some topics and it's just meant to stop and make you think. So I would say Tracy K. Smith and the slowdown deserve some run in there. 
Yeah, very cool. Finally, last thing I'll, I'll point to is Black Girl Hockey Club. Actually, it was Hemel Javeri, who I had on the show a few weeks ago, had been tweeting about this, so I checked it out. It's a nonprofit organization that focuses on making hockey uh, more inclusive for black women um, and their friends and family allies. I, again, I, I, there's all these kind of interesting uh, movements happening all over the digital universe. I, mean, I don't know if you saw last week, but a number of NHL players... Um, came out with this Hockey Diversity Alliance. It's interesting to me how sometimes athletes kind of speak up and people think, oh, this is the start of something. And then you go and you realize, no, <laughs> Black Girl Hockey Club has been growing a following <laughs> for a long time. It's, you know, it, it, and and sometimes I feel like we got to flip the script and, and not wait for just the loudest, uh, more most prominent voices in the room. I think you got to go out there, uh, try to identify and jump into some of these kind of burgeoning communities and, and, and get it on the ground floor. And I think that's, again, that's why we're doing this. That's why we're trying to point you, look, we're not perfect. We are always trying to stretch and listen and open our platform and open our minds, um, to these types of voices. Cause I think, as you said, it's, it's, it's not going to be us sort of pontificating about this that fixes it. It's going to be us listening. It's going to be mm-hmm. us paying our dues uh, to borrow, um, a, a, you know, to borrow that Baldwin quote. That's what we're doing today, uh, but more so, that's what we're going to do uh, down the road in this show. So, well, look, we've got a few shows coming up that are going to be fun and frivolous. I mentioned Huey Lewis. Uh, he's coming to the show because, look, we don't have sports, so we talked, air quotes, sports, his album, and his relationship with sports and his career. We've got a show coming up that I love. I absolutely love on um, this the role Stephen King plays in sports and the role sports plays in Stephen King books. But we, what we can promise you is that we're going to do what we've done in the past, again, with Doug's, with guests like Doug Glanville, guests like Baron Davis, Sean Livingston. We're going we're gonna to try to expose you to, to other voices, other perspectives, especially perspectives about how sports can drive racial justice, societal justice, and positive progressive change. So, um, you know, again, stay, stay tuned for more of that. The, the, our promise is that, you know, look, I'm not saying that everybody's going to want to come on this little show. I'm just saying they're all going to get invitations from me emailed to their inbox at 2 in the morning because that's kind of my jam, homie. We've tried to amplify voices and issues that mean a lot to us throughout the history of the show. My my last thing is go buy Shaq's albums. They're available on iTunes. (laughs) Give give Shaq some of your money. (laughs) There you go. Perfect. Call a cop, pump up your Reeboks and you just don't stop.